2020 was rough on many businesses. But at least in Connecticut, the brewery scene unexpectedly continued its expansion. One of the few breweries knocked back was Hanging Hills of Hartford. Knocked back, but not knocked out. Whether or not you've been to or even know about Hanging Hills, there's plenty to appreciate in this episode. You see, it's a bit of a post-mortem since Hanging Hills doesn't have its own tasting room anymore, but it's also a story of rebirth since one-third of the original ownership, Joe Plouffe, has carried on the name and many of the beers as a contract brewer. He candidly shares what it's like for an original plan to fall apart and a new plan to develop. So for anyone interested in opening a brewery or those who wonder what goes into keeping a brewery afloat despite a lot of problems, there's a lot in our episode and our interview to enjoy. I'm your host, Will Sis, and this is It Starts With Beer. One, two, three, four. This episode is brought to you by Back East Brewing in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Their taproom expansion with indoor and outdoor seating makes Back East the perfect place to enjoy excellent beers like Ice Cream Man IPA, Recoutra IPA, their award-winning Porter, or any of the other delicious beers in their ever-changing lineup. Go to BackEastBrewing.com for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of It Starts With Beer at beersnobrights.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me on Instagram or Twitter. Both are at beersnobrights. All right, I am very excited that uh, we have a chance to talk, Joe. How you been? Good. Busy, busy, busy. That's a good thing compared to the alternative. Yeah, you know, it's funny since the um, restrictions were lifted, I've been going in and out of accounts for the last like two months. So I've been on the road, uh, mostly in the western part of the state where I don't have a very large footprint. So I have seen a lot of rest areas. I've had a lot of bad coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, been all over the state in the last couple of months. And what, 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 what do these travels entail? My distributor, Craft Guild of Connecticut, and I have been working to reestablish Hanging Hills as a viable brand and to let the, the customer base, but more importantly, the off and on-premise accounts know that Hanging Hills, despite all reporting, never actually went fully out of business and that uh, we are still alive and we are making probably the best beer of the history in the history of hanging hills so this is a good chance for you to go on an influential podcast to get the (laughs) word out because it's a lot easier you can do that from your home you don't have to travel no coffee no rest areas so the title of this the working title of this episode is the continuing saga of hanging hills so any good saga has to start somewhere 
And so just for the base premise for anyone who doesn't know, Hanging Hills Brewing was a going concern as a physical location for about four years in Hartford, Connecticut. But stuff happened before and during and after that we're going to talk about. So tell me, uh, start with your professional brewing career and take me up until the moment that Hanging Hills uh, began. So I um, was teaching in uh, Vancouver, Washington in 2009 or so. And I, I caught the homebrewing bug like many men, uh, tended to be men at the time. I was living in Portland and teaching in Vancouver. I was already like deeply in love with beer, but then the science part of the beer and the art part of the beer became very attractive to me, which happened to coincide with the fact that as much as I wish that I had my heart was in it. I was never a very effective or good teacher. My wife, well, the woman who would become my wife said to me one day as I was complaining about teaching, like, well, why don't you do something about it instead of complaining all the time? And I started sending out all these emails. I actually sent out something like 40 or 50 emails to, I mean, I was living in Portland. So there was uh, at least 25 breweries in Portland at the time. Oregon as a state probably had a couple hundred. So I was sending resumes and, and like emails to all these breweries. Hey, do you need somebody to mop the floors? Do you need somebody to wash bottles? Like I will, I just want to get my foot in the door and I don't know anybody. I'm not from here. So what can I do? And I got a volunteer gig at a place called Captured by Porches. And my job was washing reusable bottles. Ooh, sounds uh, fascinating. It was. And, and the brewery was like cobbled together with about $45 glue and like bubble gum. He eventually let me brew a beer. Uh, I had no business brewing a beer. I had never once made an all grain beer at that point in my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, he just stood over my shoulder and he was like, okay, turn that valve. Okay, turn the heat down. And it was on the shelves at like Whole Foods. To me, it was like having a beer on the shelf was like hearing your song on the radio. I, I, I'm sorry for saying this, Will, but it was like the first time in my life I like knew what I wanted. And uh, I immediately applied to the American Brewers Guild. It's a distance learning program based out of Vermont. Mm. And uh, I had to wait three years. That's how long the waiting list was. Whoa. So I had to bide my time until it was ready. But in the meantime, you know, I, I kept at the homebrewing and continued learning. I, I had all these prerequisites I had to take in order for the program. Like right before the program started, my wife and I moved to Northampton, Massachusetts. I started the program was great i interned at harpoon in windsor vermont mm -hmm. i still didn't know what i was doing and they let me climb up their catwalk and and dry hop these monster tanks and like all of this i mean like i remember the way the weather was that that day and the, and the wind being up on top of there and how i was like kind of curious like should i really be up here if the winds are this powerful 
And, uh, you know, I remember every single detail of that internship and it was, it was kind of amazing. They let me in their lab. Uh, I got to extract alpha acids and the whole thing was just like illuminating to me that not beer wasn't just a hobby thing now. What was your first experience in Connecticut? So when I finished uh, my internship, I applied to a bunch of places, but Tony Karlowitz at Back East said, hey, why don't you come down to Back East and we'll talk about maybe giving you some type of internship. That was a really good Tony impersonation, by the way. That sounds just <laughs> like him. For those of you who don't know, that was spot on. Um, and I worked under the tutelage of Mike Smith, who was oh, yeah. their first head brewer. And so I got to learn under Mike. Uh, and Mike had come from Live Oak Brewing down in Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. And Live Oak is like no joke. <laughs> um, to this day, they're one of the best breweries in Texas. So like I got that lineage. Mm -hmm. And Mike was a really smart, really funny guy to work under. But he was also like, you know, trying to kind of sand down my rough edges. And, uh, and he did. And then I got offered a job at Cambridge House uh, as their head brewer. Their head brewer at the time was Chris DeGicero, who went on to go start Alvarium. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, I, I accepted the job, which may not have been the I – I don't think I was ready at the time, but I took it anyway because sometimes your ego is bigger than – then your uh, your ration your your ability to rationalize sure. And I only worked there for about three and a half months. The owner and I parted ways. It happens. It wasn't meant to be, but it ended up being a blessing in disguise because I my wife and I uh, we, we had a baby, and she and I figured out that we could uh, we could afford to live. A on a certain amount of money that I, we were making uh, and I could write the business plan for Hanging Hills while also being a stay-at-home dad. Oh, great. Which, you know, like, like honestly, like, I spent the last year during pandemic being a stay-at-home dad and quite frankly, it's like, like, it's the best job in the world. So, like, I got my, I cut my teeth being a stay-at-home dad writing the business plan. Hmm. So yeah, we were uh, we wrote the business plan. I wrote the business plan, or at least the bones of it. And then I had partnered up with a guy I had gone to beer school with, Brian Cox. Him, he was down in Louisville, Kentucky at the time, working at Bluegrass Brewing. And then through family connections, I met Scott Stoffer. Uh, and Scott Stoffer was he's more he had a, a stronger business acumen. And because he was older, he knew other older people who had a little bit more disposable income who could invest in our idea to open up a brewery. Hmm. Now, let, let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, with so many breweries opening up, they all have their own way of going about it. You know, some some do the Kickstarter thing. Some put in their own money that they've been saving up forever. Some have silent investors what was your plan uh, from the beginning? How did it change, if at all? And did it work? You know, I'm just thinking about getting the capital together and, and getting that initial investment. I think that one of 
both, uh, I think one of our strongest skill sets, uh, the, the Scott Stopper, myself and Brian Cox, was that we were able to communicate the idea of Hanging Hills very clearly to people and what we wanted. Um, which I don't know uh, very many people who have started a brewery who had an idea and were able to communicate it clearly to anybody just because it seems like everyone I talk to, the ideas kind of change as they write the business plan, as they see what other breweries are doing. And we were like, no, we are going to do this. We are going to make this type of beer. We are going to distribute it to this type of market. We are going to do this in our tasting room, but our ultimate goal is to be a production facility. And that's what our goal was. And we stuck to it. And people believed in that goal because we, I think we were really good at selling it. Was the location part of that already? Where you were saying, and this is going to be in South Hartford and it's going to be in this area, or was that, did that come later? I always wanted it to, the brewery to be in Hartford. My wife is from West Hartford. As a, as a city, I kind of like this idea of like, doing using my business to do good things and uh and i felt like hartford was a really good city that had really good bones really awesome people but it doesn't get a lot of love from outside so i felt like we could help bring a positive image to the city right but with that said we did look at other places and we looked all over the state we looked in new haven we looked in southington we looked in bloomfield we sort of looked up and down the 91 corridor at buildings and spaces. But the one we kept coming back to was the one we ended up settling on, on Ledyard street, because it had the infrastructure in place to be, to have a small tasting room and a production facility. And the goal was for us to be a production facility that distributed beer out the door. For those who are not familiar with Connecticut or Hartford specifically, how would you describe the area that, um, that Hanging Hills was in? So it was a light industrial neighborhood in the south end of Hartford. Uh, historically speaking, the south end of Hartford, if you move a couple blocks west of where we were, it's very poor. Mm -hmm. It is plagued by poverty. And kind of, you know, like, this is not a knock on Luke Bronin. I actually love Luke Bronin. Mayor of uh, Hartford. Mayor of Hartford. But, like, it has been neglected for so long by many administrations that like it looked like a, a, a part like a it looks like a detroit what people would think of detroit it looks like that abandoned um, things kind of run down that's the stereotype that i'm picturing and you're saying that that's the, pretty similar to to the reality yeah so that's the stereotype and the reality but the reality of the situation was that the, like the real reality situation down there is that it is actually pretty awesome. There's a lot of small businesses that are thriving. People are doing, working their best to put food on the table and they're, they're doing everything they can to survive. Sure. But there is, there is a governmental neglect down there. And I, you know, I don't want to get too much into the weeds on that stuff. Like I can, and I, and I would under different podcasts, but our goal was not to fix the South end, but what we did want was to have inexpensive real estate uh, in a place convenient to the highway. And what we neglected to do was think about perceptions from the outsides as far as that space went. Right, because because while you saw 
you know, it was like, you know, obviously people can't just teleport into the brewery. They got to cross the neighborhood to get there. And right. you're saying that their misperception or, or perception of the, of the neighborhood being rough or not inviting, that kept people away? I, I think initially, but uh, over like course of a couple of years, we, we started seeing a huge uptick in our tasting room sales, which it wasn't just returning customers who were buying more beer. You know, it was new people coming in. You know, there, there was a developing Connecticut beer infrastructure like the CT beer tours, uh, all these limo operations, you know, ta- you know, taxiing people back and forth. The, the Brewers Guild was doing a really good job of, of marketing breweries. So we started seeing an increase in our tasting room sales, despite the fact that people in the suburbs immediately near the brewery had a perception, had these preconceived notions of the South End of Hartford. Mm-hmm. People were coming. Our beer was good. Our place was great. We had really good music. I mean, Will, you went there a couple of times. Very, very inviting. Very inviting. Very lively. Yes. Yes. And it was well designed. And, um, you know, I remember I, I had someone that I'd met over Twitter uh, coming in from England. And I said, you know, he said, oh, I'm going to be in the Hartford area. I said, this is the brewery we need to go to. I, you know, and we had a wonderful time. So it was absolutely you know, a pleasant experience all around. And, and that's what we try to create. I mean, we would have done that work regardless of where we were, but we try to put an emphasis on customer service and wel- and being welcoming of people uh, when they came in because we knew that people would be battling whatever stereotypes they had of the South End of Hartford. The, we opened uh, July 9th of 2016 by We I Mean Hanging Hills, and we fucked up every single decision. Really? Everything. Every decision we fucked up. Our first few beers, our first few beers, no hazies. In 2016, we didn't offer a hazy. We didn't offer a hazy till midway through the second year. And it wasn't like we were putting out lagers or farmhouse beers. We just put our foot down and we're like, no, we are making West Coast style IPAs. And we are making stouts that taste like stouts. And we're going to start off with a mild and we're going to put it, push it down people's throats. And it's the people who need to come around to us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and then on top of that, we are, as we already discussed, we had this bad location. We were also undercapitalized. Did you know that at the time and you, it was a risk you were going to take? Or like, could you have waited another six months and, and, get, and raised more money? Or what, how, what was the perception of that undercapitalization? Did you realize it later or did you know it at the time? Well, we knew it pretty quickly because we couldn't can our beers. We also, if we wanted to put in like minor equipment that would improve beer quality or allow hire somebody, we weren't able to do it without compromising in another area. And because we didn't, and by we, I'm going to take the blame on this because I own the company now and we'll get to that shortly because i didn't really respect what the customer wanted in terms of beer we didn't hit it out of the park and we we had to really struggle we, we had set all of these like hurdles in place for ourselves you know there's enough hurdles in place when you're starting a small business 
And we're like, yo, we're not giving you the beer we like. And here's why we're doing it. And here's why we're jerks about it. And I mean, it was almost kind of pretentious of us because we were like, we're going to have an ESB. We're going to have a mild. We're going to have an English, you know, style stout. Mm. Uh, our IPA is going to be bright. It's going to be using old school American hops. It's going to use crystal malts. And on top of that, we're not going to have cans. We're going to have 32 ounce growlers. And that's the only way you're going to be able to take our beer from the brewery. And we had our only distribution at the time was draft. So we did everything we could to hamper our success in the beginning. Okay. So, but you know, you're, you're hard on yourself here. All of those descriptions sound really great from my perception, but then again, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to keep your brewery afloat and I'm not, I don't live near and close enough to keep you guys afloat. So yeah, I, I see what you're saying, you know, and, and it, it's, it, it's been done that way before. I remember there was another brewery that, that said, we're going to make, I love English style ales and that's all we're going to make. And you don't know about that brewery anymore because he stuck to his guns too. We never bounced checks and we never, you know, people always got paid, but we were always running on fumes. And it was always like this every month, like, guys, no spending money. Guys, don't buy this. Guys. And usually by guys, it was Scott telling Brian and I, like, we needed to calm down. Did you see that day to day? Like, would people come in and be like, oh, you got any New England IPA? And you're like, no. Oh, all Did the they time. just walk out? <laughs> I mean, was it that bad? <laughs> I remember there, there was this guy who ended up being like a returning customer. But I actually remember the first time he came in, this big muscular dude, he would come in with his wife and his kids. And I remember he ordered this beer. And this was another failure we made. We our, our two biggest sellers at the time were a beer called IOPA, India Oat Pale Ale, mm. and YPA, which was Yellow Pale Ale. Yes. So we created... That one always confused me by the name, but anyway. <laughs> is it yellow? Is it pale? You're a smart guy who reads all the time. Imagine what it did to everyone in the world who tried <laughs> to understand what we were trying to do. Sure. <laughs> so like, we just thought it was like this funny joke, but it wasn't funny. And it wasn't even that, you know, the beer was great, but like we turned a lot of people off. <laughs> so, uh, I remember, so this guy comes in and he gets India oat pale ale and he takes a sip of it and he looks at it. And he's like, fucking west coast (laughs) (laughs) and i I like looked at him like yeah man that's what we make bro right i didn't actually say that but that's what i was thinking in my head but like yeah you you would think that like after all this stuff happening that we would have we i would have changed earlier on and we didn't and we we ended up you know really putting ourselves in a bind financially that we were never, we never climbed out of it. You did get some, uh, you got, you got an award for uh, heartbeat, your double IPA yep. that came in 2017. And yep. of course, Hills pills, you know, that, that really took off. Was that after all this or was this still in the mix of all this? This is when we started learning our lesson. So Brian and I, always wanted to brew a Pilsner and we put out this beer for my friend who was coming up uh, with her partner to do a pop-up show. And we figured we would do this thing with true colors and we would have this like queer friendly beer called pride Pilsner. And the beer was like wildly successful and it was delicious. It was like really good. 
So we're like, well, why don't we turn this into a regular beer? And at the time, I mean, like this is 2017. It's not that far away ago, but in terms of lager production in Connecticut, it's like eons ago. Yeah. I mean, there was like Sunshine Pills and Trokes. You had Two Roads putting out a Pilsner, Jack's Abbey's Pilsners. Mm. And the rest were mostly imports. And, I, and I'm sorry if I'm forgetting anybody, but yeah. oh, Bomo Pills from back east. Mm -hmm. But Bomo wasn't a regular beer. G&G &G was our distributor down the southern part of the state and Kraft, who had the rest of the state other than West Hartford and Hartford. They really pushed us and said, hey, why don't you guys put out a Pilsner on a regular basis? Yeah. You know, at the price point, also, we know that you're capable of making it. You should put it out, and at least it'll guarantee you draft lines in between, like, 100 IPAs in, in, at bars and restaurants. Yeah, stand out a little bit. Yeah, and then I got this email from, uh, you know, six months later, I got this email from Jim Varell, who is uh, the content editor at Pace Magazine, mm. and he said, hey – I don't know how I came across your beer. I don't know about your brewery at all. I don't know anything about Hartford, Connecticut, but out of 132 Pilsners that we tasted, yours was the fourth or the fifth best. All right. So like we knew we were making a good beer and right around the, right around the same time we put out heartbeat double IPA and it, it took off. We won gold at the Great International Beer Festival the first year we submitted. It won silver the next year. Um, and to this day, even as a contract brewery now, it is still my fastest rate of sale beer. Like I look at every every week, I look at the sales numbers, and it's the one that flies out the door the fastest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's the one that people know us by. Yeah. Yeah, we we finally switched gears. We, we actually started selling beer on a regular basis like our distributors would come and take a lot of beer as opposed to like 10 kegs and maybe 20 cases they were taking 150 cases and 20 kegs and, and like you know a couple of half barrels and we're like oh shit we're in the money but again we just at 10 barrels like that size is like this no man's land like you're not it's not good if you're a production facility size because you, you it costs so much to produce the, the, the beer. Yep. But it's also too large for on-premise. So we were constantly torn between making beer for the tasting room Ooh. at a volume that was too much or not being able to make enough to satisfy demands on Heartbeat and Hills Pills and eventually Metacomet and other beers that we were putting out, Ferris and mail truck and so we were constantly in this bind of like not having enough money mm -hmm. and it and it got on it grew like it like it was like a it was like a wart that just kept getting bigger and bigger and all of a sudden like you know we were fighting over really stupid incredibly stupid shit that could have been handled in a simple conversation had we not had the you know the constant existential pressure of failure looming over us the whole time Tell me a little bit about what that does day to day. Did, did, would any of the customers have noticed it from the, the quality of the beer? Did that suffer at all? Or uh, the, the experience at the bar or the brewery, did that suffer? I would say that 
Brian Cox is an outstanding brewer. And no matter his, his and my personal feelings towards each other at the time, he was always a good brewer. Uh, I should say great brewer. So the, the quality didn't waver on that side of things. But the demands in the market, as well as running the business side of things, sort of took their toll in the tasting room because we were constantly looking for a tasting room manager who could do all of the tasks that we needed them to do on a regular basis at a salary level that was pretty decent, but not great for the expectations we had, you know? And so like we always, and this is like kind of peeking under the hood a little bit, but I would say that our tasting room reputation started to lag and we, we churned through probably three tasting room managers, bang, bang, bang. Because they left or because you um, wanted to change? Yeah. Both. And so that, uh, it wasn't, it, we just, we couldn't figure out the, the equation all the way. Now, was this taking a toll on everybody? Well, maybe let's just speak for yourself. Was this because this was your only job? You weren't, you weren't doing another job on the side, right? No, this was my only job. So that's scary. So this went went from bad to worse to done over what a period of two years three years yeah probably and we just you know we 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 grew as as a lot of small businesses do that aren't successful even the ones that are successful we just grew uh we grew apart as people the the ability to communicate went completely out the window and as did the i mean the way we went so did hanging hills sure it all culminated when in January of last year when, you know, the whole Andy Go thing happened. I'm going to jump in here and give you just a little bit of background. Using the Hanging Hills Twitter account, Joe made what you could call a joke or a threat, depending on your perspective, uh, and it involved the conservative author and social media personality, Andy Go, And so Andy Go uh, took uh, Joe's tweet and retweeted it, and uh, that's where the backlash began for Hanging Hills uh, once it reached a lot of uh, Go's followers. So back to the interview. I drew a lot of scrutiny on my, my employees and the company uh, for my own personal beliefs. And um, it was really unfortunate because I actually really cared about my employees. They're really good people. And they had to like put up with a lot of shit because I sent a joke to this guy and he posted it to his 300,000 followers. The media kind of, you know, the local media sort of twisted it, made it seem worse than it was, made it clickbaity. And then it actually made it worse because then all of these local sympathizers came out of the woodworks and none of them came to the brewery. They just threatened us online and over the phone. But it did put my employees in a really bad position. Yeah, it took on a life of its own, I guess. It did. So ultimately, Will, I've set the stage for complete and utter failure. And uh, on March 12th, we knew that the governor was going to enforce a shutdown on the state, and we had enough money to get through probably June. 
And at that point, we wouldn't have enough to pay our employees, our bills. And my business partners looked at it like, you know what? Uh, this, this is the right time. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was the right time for me too, for like a day. <laughs> and then I thought back on all of those failures that I just listed off to you. Yeah. And all of those poor decisions and bad luck and like all of those things. And, I, and then also all of the time I'd spent away from my children, mm. but my wife kind of being there in support of me as we failed and made all these mistakes. Like we were like a monkey fucking a football on a regular basis. Mm. And all of these people had expectations of us, all these investors are people that we knew who would come into the tasting room, like loved our beers, people who didn't come into the tasting room, but across Connecticut who really supported us. And like, I was like, I can't just give up. Like I can't just let it go. I love the company. Like I, I, I'm like, you know, Billy Martin with the Yankees, you know, like I, I, I bleed this shit. Yeah. And, uh, and so I assumed all that, that failure, which for at the time was measured in debt. Mm. Uh, and immediately figured out a transition for the company, which is what the stage we're in right now. What lessons did you learn from your time in as a physical brewery? And how do you think you're going to apply what you've learned into your current situation uh, working uh, at East Rock? And then what do you expect uh, will happen in the future? I think that what I learned the most is to be highly, to, to put a lot of scrutiny on, on spending. I mean, that's a huge part of it, but also to be very patient. You know, a lot of the news that people have heard about hanging Hills in the last couple of years has not been positive. And that's a, you know, we dug ourselves a hole as a company. And now I, as a sole remaining member have to like, build bridges again Mm. and the failures kind of like gave me the confidence to realize like this is as low as it gets for a company like uh, by all by all accounts it should have gone out of business by all accounts like i should people should not be buying my beer Mm. they should not have the opportunity to buy my beer i should say and i'm really lucky and i think that that's that sort of occurred to me since all of this happened but also Working with the guys at East Rock, who I'm now contracting with, they're the smartest guys I think I've ever worked with. And being willing to, to, to recognize how smart they are and that I can learn from them and build a better brand, a better company, a stronger company, and perfect my beers. Because Tim Wilson is, like, I, I don't say this lightly. I, I think Tim Wilson is one of the three best brewers in the state. Mm. And I mean that. He's the head yeah. brewer at East Rock. That dude knows everything and he's fully capable of any style. I mean, he had never brewed a hazy IPA prior to brewing Halamanta IPA, which is our comeback beer. Mm. And he knocked it out of the park the first time he brewed it. Mm. He's a lager guy. Yeah, exactly. He's a lager guy. He's he's a master lager brewer. Is that why you chose um, East Rock? What was the connection? Why? Because there are, there are several places that you could have made your beer. Well... That's a, you know, that's a really good question. I chose East Rock because they're, I know that they can make Hills Pills right. Mm. Also, 
I know, I knew, like Tim and I had bumped into each other five or six times, even prior to COVID, just like, we always hit it off. We, we, we kind of share a simpatico, we like share a sim, like a, a, a similar language when we're talking about beer. And we both get excited about the same shit. Like, uh, I just, for instance, I'll give you an example about this. I just went up to New Hampshire with my family last weekend. And I had Schilling's Alexander. And I don't know if you've ever had that Pilsner. No. Well, it's, it is, it's perfect. Mm. It's straight perfect beer. So I immediately text him. I'm like, I, you have to drink this. Like, I'm going to bring you back a can. You have to have it. And so I bring it back to East Rock and we, we, we pour it and we, you know, we're looking at it, we're sniffing, we're, you know, we're kind of doing the whole Cicerone tasting notes thing. Yeah. And, uh, but really what we're doing is we're just like, holy shit, this thing's fucking incredible. And isn't that a nice thing though? I mean, imagine you brought it back and he's like, yeah, it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like that confirmation that, yeah, your palate is uh, is on point as, as it is, as his is. But I also think that like we recognize like 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 that we all have a little bit to grow and, and mm-hmm. like been having a beer like that could really undermine any ego you have. Oh sure. Set you right uh, back at one. Yeah, you're like, oh shit, what do I know about anything? Right. And uh and as Tim and I we we were just like just in awe of this product. And it made me want to make a better Pilsner going forward. And so anyways once they got a canning line in November of last year, it was like a no-brainer. I, I, I'd already started the, spinning the wheels of rebranding the company, uh, building a new website. Um, I worked with this gentleman, Brian Steely, down in Atlanta mm-hmm. to develop a more current, but also like bring the house together. Like The artwork that we made together is cohesive. Mm. It all makes sense. It's all very clear. You know where the brewery is. You know what the style is. There's no, you know, we fucked around a lot with our labels mm-hmm. in the past. And these ones are like super professional, but they're gorgeous. He does the artwork for fish, for many fish posters. He does mm-hmm. the artwork for My Morning Jacket. Oh, wow. Um, he does a lot of the branding for the Newport uh, Folk Festival. Oh, wow. Um, and I mean, not to mention like, you know, probably five or 600 other accounts across the country. He's mm-hmm. just a really talented guy, really great taste in music. And I knew the direction I wanted to take the company. Uh, and he was able to understand, you know, my gibberish and turn it into something gorgeous. That is a, a skill for sure. <laughs> well, not, I mean, I laid out the picture as if we only failed. Uh, but as it turns out, we had some successes too. We collaborated once with a band, The Hold Steady, from, uh, they're a Brooklyn band, uh, kind of like a, you know, a really smart bar band with incredible lyrics. Absolutely. Um, with a, with just a drop of Bruce Springsteen influence, I would say. For a hundred percent. And uh, yeah, like, like, like Bruce Springsteen, if he got a master's in fine arts, you know, mm-hmm. like really, really talented dudes. And I, and I've always loved them and they're just a good drinking band. Yeah. So the reason why that worked out is one of my good buddies uh, designed this really great website that took all of their lyrics and annotated them. And uh, they they like to reference locations in their songs. And so he built all these Google pinpoints of all (laughs) 
and then like annotated the lyrics to the pinpoint so like the user can be like oh they're talking about ebor city what's ebor city oh let me click on that and then you get the full gist and every single song that references ebor city and because he did that he had these connections to the band and i said you know what what do i have to lose i'm gonna reach out to them and so we did a beer with them an ipa with them in 2017 for their run of shows down in brooklyn brooklyn bowl and um they were, it's funny because Rook and Bowl was like they'd never heard of us. It's like a theme for Hanging Hills. Uh, they'd never heard of us, so they had no idea about the quality of the beer, and they completely underbought the beer. And so um, I ended up having to drive. My wife and I drove a bunch of beer. I'm going to say it on, on your show. Mm. Uh, we drove a bunch of beer across state lines illegally Ooh. to deliver. <laughs> to deliver you're the first Bowl. one that's ever done that <laughs> wow I, I can hear the sirens coming up uh, at your house now so we, we delivered all this beer to them because they had complete they, they, they blew through see I, I want to say we sent down seven half barrels hmm. um, the first delivery and they blew through four of them on the first night Woo. So they knew that if they blew through four on the first night, they were dead in the water for Saturday. So we had to drive down. And when we got there, there was a line of people like 40 or 50 deep waiting to buy this beer, this IPA we put out. And people were sending messages to each other like, you have to get this IPA. It's fucking incredible. Mm. And it was really, it was really uplifting because they, they like. He like calls me, the guy calls me, he's like in a panic, the owner of Brooklyn Bowl, he's in a panic. I, I need you to bring beer. I don't know. I don't care how you get it here. Just bring beer, bring beer. So we drove, uh, I had six logs left, so smaller kegs. And so we drove them down and they blew through the beer by the end of Friday night. And I think they had one log left on Saturday. Uh, but there's no way to break through in the market when there's a hundred plus breweries in the state, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's no way to get your name on the lips of important people in the beer industry, unless you're a hype brand. Mm -hmm. yes. And, yes. And quite frankly, like the whole hype, I'm like, I don't want to sound bitter or anything. Like mm. it's so much better not to be a hype brand because if you're a hype brand, all you can do is make products that are more and more hype going forward. I think that because we were in this constant, concern about money and like we were stressed out all the time it it strangely allowed us way more freedom to explore and experiment to try to get people to come in to try to attach ourselves to different clientele to be known for more than just hazy ipas or known for you know like the, the 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 ice cream stouts and mm. and you know like those beers all have their place and i'm not dissing on them yeah. but i wanted to make beer that at the end of the day i was really proud of well, I mean, you know, we we if anybody can can stretch music analogies, you you're the perfect partner for it. But it's kind <laughs> of like a band who's like, "No, I'm I'm not going to do this trap version of the song or I'm not going to do this <laughs> auto-tuned version of a of a song cuz I have a great voice just cuz everybody expects that, you know, they're going to stay true to their product." And yeah, there's risk in it because, you know, of course there's the 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 you know, unfortunately, shrinking market for beer is still starting to uh, everybody kind of takes takes sides like tribes and say, you know, 
I gotta have my Starburst Snickers beer, or I've gotta have my Amber, you know, with no adjuncts, and you know, everything's gotta be clean. You know, we, we it's too bad we're we're siloing a little bit, but it's just the nature of the beast. There's this uh, great band out of Woodstock, New York, uh, the Felice Brothers, mm. and they have been offered more money. That, that uh, Ian Felice once said, I, I was offered more money uh, to do one commercial for Dow Chemical than we as a band would have made in revenue for the entire year. Oof. But then his song would have had to be in a Dow Chemical commercial. Right. And, uh, yeah. They, they refused it. Yeah. That's commitment. That's tough. It's tough, and and, and like I hope my I hope my investors have already given up on this podcast so that they don't hear me saying that out loud. But <laughs> uh, like there, th- I I do believe in beer integrity, and at this point, like the beers I make, the uh, and the beers that we're making with East Rock are the best beers the Hanging Hills have ever made, and I think that that only comes because we are able to spend so much time at Ledger Street focusing on developing the beers, perfecting the beers. And now they are at their their peak performance. And that doesn't mean that they're done. That doesn't mean I'm done perfecting them, but they're as good as I've ever made a beer, which means that I have a long way to go, but I've come so far. You know what I'm saying? I do, but there is something that sounds really good about Hanging Hills, brought to you by Dow Chemical. <laughs> Talk to me about you. You had mentioned to me uh, something about a smoked pumpkin doppelbach. Is this something in the works? Is this about to be released? What's the, what's the story? Because I can't say I've had it. Can't say I've seen it. So I'm, uh, I'm uh, I'd like to hear about it. So we had done this collaboration with Bears Barbecue a couple of years in a row, where we smoked pumpkin meat at their facility, and threw it in the mash which of, of a smoked doppelbach you know uh like uh schlenkerla style and this year the collaboration didn't work out but but because i'm at east rock like i want to make like these are the styles of beers I, like not necessarily the pumpkin part of it but the doppelbachs the czech pills uh you know uh some of these these other Czech styles mm. uh, that I have been dying, Politmavi that I've been trying to brew at Hanghouse for a long time. Like now, like that oyster is open to me. And so when I brought it up to Tim, it's like, hey, we used to do this beer. It's called Pumpkin the Bear. It's a smoked pumpkin, smoked doppelbach. Mm. And he looked at me like really screwy because Tim, he's a Renhotskabot guy and he hears pumpkin in a doppelbach and it's like instant cringe for him. Oh, yeah. And so when I brought it up, he was like, come on, man, really? <laughs> like, but I think he was thinking to himself, like I was going to throw in a bunch of coriander and, and allspice and pumpkin pie spicing. And when I explained to him what I wanted to do, he was like, oh, that sounds legit. It's the smoke that really sets it apart. I mean, anybody can put pumpkin pumpkin pie spices in a beer. That's right. not that's not what you've, you envisioned. No, and, and to me, like, you know, a beer like this is meant to be paired with food. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, and it le- like a doppelbach by itself pairs itself with 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 harvest style food. So, you know, squashes and you know, like heavier pasta dishes and stuff like that. Right. But this steps it up to the next level, where you, you maybe you have some risotto and 
maybe some cured ham or like for me, I love country ham, mm. something along those lines, some Ben's bacon breakfast sandwiches and a doppelbach, a smoked pumpkin doppelbach. And, you know, we put it out. Uh, tw- this will be the third time we put it out twice before and it sells exceptionally well. Mm. And so because I'm at East Rock, because I love the style, the double box style, and because the beer kind of has this little niche, we're bringing it back. And uh, and this year's batch is the most German you're ever going to get and still have pumpkin in it. My thanks to Joe Plouffe. You can follow him on Twitter at hillsbeer and Instagram at Hanging Hills Brewing. You can go to his website to learn more, hanginghillsbrewery.com. Welcome to the after party. Pull up a pile of hurricane debris and have a seat. Have another beer. It's been a while. Months. Um, I have no excuse except that I still have the new father responsibilities so I have a daughter who just turned 18 months and she's been a absolute delight a lot of work absolute delight that's where my mind's at that's what I'm thinking about almost all the time and so between that and a an episode that got deleted yep it happened again it it, it could happen it could happen to anybody but it seems to happen to me twice and so you know had the whole thing in the can and I don't know I deleted some parts of it and it's irretrievable so I'm working on rescheduling that interview (laughs) and that's another story so I'll talk more about that when that one comes to fruition but I enjoyed talking to Joe and I'm rooting for him and his version of Hanging Hills It can't be easy, but that is the illusion. I think the illusion is that running a brewery is fun and easy when it's oftentimes just the opposite. I'm sure there are times when it is actually a lot of fun and when things are going well, it's something to celebrate. But when things are going poorly, that's reality and we need to respect that. And we need to hear more about that. I'd like to hear more stories of of failure and more stories of frustration. And then, of course, how you turn that around and make it work. It Starts With Beer is part of the Hopped Up Network. You can listen to other beer podcasts, including Beer and Nonsense, the best, best friends podcast in the world, and the Beer Man podcast at hoppedupnetwork.com. It Starts With Beer is narrated and produced by me, Will Sis. Please leave a high-star review. Tell somebody about the podcast you think might want to listen. Theme music is performed by me and drummer George Mastrianis. Background music is courtesy of Pixabay. Until next time, sip well. <laughs>